0: Uh, we are getting ready to start like what I would call a mini-series, because oftentimes we preach through the books of the Bible. This series, three weeks, the next three weeks, is going to be much more topical, and when our teaching team got together and was looking at the different themes that we wanted to talk about, stretching through the summer into the fall, uh, one of the things we wanted to do, and it was something you know, that I was excited about, is that we've never really talked finances at all in the history of this church, and I know because I was here at the beginning, uh, every once in a while, maybe there was a part of a sermon that talked about it, but we've never just tried to focus in on that as a subject. And because my job, I'm in uh, nonprofit finance, so basically I work with churches uh, and Christian nonprofits all the time to help them get their finances in line. I was like, I'm actually qualified to speak to this. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking in this series, and we talk about this topic of stewardship. And you know, for those of us who are in the church, the term stewardship feels like it's part of you know Christianese, right? It's like this term that you think is limited to church, but the reality is, stewardship is a term that has actually broadened its appeal. Quite honestly, within the uh, burgeoning environmental field, we talk about this idea of stewardship. That w- what that is is us stewarding. Handling overseeing responsibility for resources, so in an environmental context, we talk about stewardship in this way as how do we take care of this earth that we have been given with on a Christian context, we usually just say that 's when i 'm supposed to tithe and put money in the offering box, but it 's so much more robust than that because from a biblical perspective, stewardship is how do I handle those resources that God has put in my care and that vernacular that, that type of expression is very key because as as much as you and I maybe monitor our bank accounts or you know, what kind of salary I'm being paid with a job, the reality is, is that none of this is yours. Like you're stewarding everything that God has blessed you. So even if it's income that you receive from a job, the Lord blessed you with the ability to earn money, and therefore you're even stewarding your resources, your talents, your time. And that's why it's such an important thing for us to see how that intertwines with us as faith. And I think that's what I want us to look at within the context of this series on stewardship. Specifically because, again, I'm in a lot of churches, and I know how churches have to conduct their strategy, and they're always coming back to this because it is, it, people are less philanthropic than they were generations ago. And I look at giving, attendance, all these ratios. I get to see this within all the churches we work with across the country. All of them are trending downward, so churches are forced to pay more attention to that. So then you, you, you're, you're basically uh, hearing churches say some of the same things over. Like I was just in a gathering a few weeks ago when they were talking about giving, and, and the minister said, you know, over 2,300 times in the Bible, does the Bible men, men, uh, mention giving or, you know, stewarding your resources? And I'm like, you know, that's a compelling fact, right? 2,300 times. It's not to say that then giving stewardship, these things aren't, important, but then it's also to realize that the world in which we live today is dramatically different from biblical times, right? One of the stats I put out rather frequently is in the time of Jesus, like 93, 94% of all people who lived lived in abject poverty, which means that they did not know where their meal was coming from for the next day. Okay, that's a different context, especially where we in America sit right now. Also, you think that, you know, this idea of savings, right, there's, you know, we we talk about using banks and needing banks and having transactions, none of that existed within biblical times. I was thinking this week, uh, you know, because my job, you know, going out to California to meet with my offices, like, my workplace is like my house. I work from home. And maybe some of you, I know some of you are in the process of doing that. And I was like, well, that's different today. And then I'm like, no, everybody had a work from home policy, but their work was their home. Like they had to either create something in their house or they had to tend farm animals. And that was the way that they did this. But the idea that you can make income now and interact with colleagues that you will never meet in person is something that is dramatically different. So what I would say is that When we look at the scriptures, what I'm leery of, and I've seen a lot of good Christian people try to do this, is say, well, here are the biblical principles of how you need to handle your finances. Like, these are the strategies that you need to employ. And I'm like, that's crap. Because it's a totally different society today than what we saw there. But what the scriptures speak to, over and over again, is how we use those resources. So I think there's philosophies there for us. And what I want to hone in on this series is that uh, of the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it stands to reason then that the inverse is true, right? That your heart, where that is, is going to be where you pour your resources, what you're passionate about. And this is why this topic, I think we have to revisit it from more of a a broad perspective, a philosophical perspective, because it comes down essentially to what it means for you and I to follow Jesus. So that's what I want to talk about the next three weeks. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to enter, I'm not going to do the bait and switch, because I'm telling you straight up, I'm going to talk about some financial aspects here, but much more so what we see is our stewardship is a reflection of how we view discipleship. right? Who I am as a follower of Jesus shows how I steward and handle what God has given me. And the reason I want to talk about to follow Jesus because you and I, as Christ followers, are trying to emulate who he was, and he lived and spoke about this. So I'm not going to go straight through a scripture text like we do here. We're going to jump around here and there. But I do want to go to Matthew chapter 9. If you have a pew Bible with you today, one of the blue Bibles, it's page 687. And I'm only going to read one verse here, but in Matthew chapter 9, and by the way, it's going to end up at verse 21, but as you're getting there, if you see the stories there, Matthew chapter 9 is interesting because it's quintessential Jesus, right? When you think about Jesus, like what did Jesus do? Well, he walked around and he taught a lot. Jesus said a lot of profound things, but in the midst of it, Jesus was like the healing guy, right? Right? Like, Jesus would be like, bam, healed, 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 healed. And if you look at Matthew chapter 9, he's in the midst of one of these things, right? Paralytic guy, walk. Blind person, see. Mute person, you can speak. Like, Jesus is just healing and healing and healing because it's what he do, right? Like, Jesus is all about that. Then you get to verse 21, which is interesting. Because what you would think is, as Jesus went to heal, then, you know, there's less people that need to be healed, so it would trend downward. But actually what happened is that the more that Jesus healed, the more that the opportunities increased. People came out of the woodwork and were saying, you know, Jesus, we need what you have. That's exhausting, right? Like, think about it. Jesus healing people, and then there comes more. So generally, when your inbox piles up, or the in receptacle on your desk starts to accumulate more papers. You, you know, you 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 get just exhausted and you step away. But what we see in Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-six. I'm sorry about that. Verse thirty-six is that when Jesus saw the crowds, what was his reaction? He had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion, and friends, I think that's a key principle. What we want to talk about this morning is that for us to follow Jesus, we need to have compassion for our world. For us to follow Jesus, we need to have compassion for our world. I think that's tough to do for us. Because as much as we want to be like Jesus, and much as we want to say we are people of compassion, what we generally do is we accept that in certain aspects, but then we create certain workarounds that prohibit us from being truly compassionate in the way that Jesus was compassionate for his world. Three things that I see, just ways in which we try to make compassion work around so that we can, you know, just manage compassion according to the way that we want. And I think the first thing is our self-care, is that we tend to funnel our compassion inward to service personal needs. Now, as much as I want to say this is, this is modern society and the way that we, you know, are taking care of ourselves, friend, this, this goes back to biblical times, right? This was something that, you know, the, the New Testament authors, even the prophets called out, the idea that people were so internally focused that they did not show compassion elsewhere. But I want to say this, too, is that even if you adopt an evolutionary trajectory, we would say that this idea meshes in perfectly, because if we're looking at our survivalist instinct, the reason that we want to care for ourselves is because, evolutionarily, we believe that we are the most important thing in the universe, and our survival is the most important thing we can protect. And as such, we begin to practice self-care. The problem here becomes, then, is that when we funnel compassion inwards to ourselves, that lessens the bandwidth that exists for us to be compassionate to others. So bringing up the modern vernacular, and I see this on the social medias all the time, perhaps you're a Parks and Rec fan, but there's a whole verbiage that is it stemmed from that, which is this idea, and z Zanzari's character is like Tom, Tom Hannaford is, is treat yourself, and he has, like, ho oh, treat yourself days to where you're supposed to, you know, just any extravagance that you are withholding from yourself, you indulge in it on this day because it's important to treat yourself, right? Now, what's funny is that, it's, and it's so tough to say that, like, you know, I want to say treat yourself, but it's treat yourself, but here's the thing about that is as much as that exists uh, as a, you know, just a catchphrase, it's become a characteristic lately because I've even seen people say, it's like, you know what, you need to practice inward care. I saw a wonderful um, Christ follower the other day put on Instagram, it was a social media thing where it was like, you need to, you know, there's love your neighbor as yourself, but I always forgot the idea to love yourself was just as important as loving your neighbor. And I wanted to be like, you're so wrong. Because what that is, is us adopting a perspective that is inwardly focused. By the way, I wanted to preface this. It's in my notes even to say this. Is that these things I'm going to talk about, you're not going to like it. It's going to make you feel awkward. And what I would respond to then is like, if it makes you feel awkward, then do me a favor and seek the scriptures to where you find the Bible verse to be like, Steve, you're wrong. If it's just I don't like this, sometimes we misinterpret this idea of guilt which I'll admit this is the guilt component of the message today, so adjust accordingly. But it's this idea that we think it's okay just to focus inward and to treat ourselves, to practice inward compassion, but when we do that to an extreme, it limits what's available for us. We see that? So that's why I'm trying to say is that it doesn't mean then that Sabbath is bad. It doesn't mean that you need to exhaust yourself. Okay, so you may Sabbath. But the issue is, is that when Sabbath becomes self-worship, then it denies what compassion exists to do. Look at the teachings of Jesus, right? Because Jesus was a person who when all of the exhaustion hit supreme, what did he do? He continued to practice, to practice compassion. So self-care is something that can be a workaround. Selectivity can be a workaround. It's when we determine ahead of time those that are worthy of our compassion. I think this might be one that doesn't sit well because most of us view ourselves in, as enlightened individuals, right? Like we're the upper list of what it means to be Christ followers, so we're we're more mature. So we're like, look, in that you know stratosphere, I am an enlightened person who does not show prejudice, right? Like I, I would say that you know, especially this time in history, we are very sensitive when there are people groups that are being. Uh, that are being disrespected just because of who they are. It's that type of selectivity that we're like, okay, that's easy. That's not a workaround, right? But it's interesting because I usually see that being called back to generation past. And this is, I feel awkward about this illustration. I think it works. So will you stick with me? And later, if I have offended you on this illustration, you know, talk with it because I really thought about this a lot this week. But I have uh, family members, specifically those, you know, those wonderful people that went ahead before me, like my grandparents, who would say things that were like prejudicial and racist. And I would just be like, "I, I cannot understand this. But generally what's interesting about that is those prejudices were often linked to people groups with whom they had very little interaction. So I'll give you specifically, is like in my house, you would never, you know, not my house, but my like familial house, like generations ago, you wouldn't say uh, something bad against African-Americans, but you may against the Japanese, and it felt justified because during World War II, they were the enemy and they were the most horrible people that ever lived. So it's like, here I am living in the 1970s and 80s, hearing my grandparents, it's like, well, at least they're not the Japs. And you're like, ooh, like where did that come from? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, they lived in this time of conflict and war. So get with this part of the illustration. I'm not trying to excuse what that was. I would say that the blessings of where we're at now is we tend to be less prejudicial. But eh, do we really? Because, like, Muslims are such an easy target for some people, too, especially Christians, right? It's, like, because Muslims try to kill Christians, and they're the real enemy. And we just have these prejudices. Now, if I put this on people groups, you're like, all's good, right? Like, I am not... Prejudice against people groups, but friends, we tend to harbor internal prejudices that sometimes don't fit cleanly within demographics. I'll tell you, maybe this week is where it kind of shines through because I see a lot of prejudice towards people based upon political affiliation. And it happens because what we do is we justify our selectivity. We try to say, these are the people that are worthy of of compassion, people in high areas of need, and people with whom I already agree. What I love about Jesus is that he's not discriminate. he's not selective in whom he shows compassion. And actually, he goes as far as to say, what should we do? The teaching was, love your neighbor as yourself. But he's like, no, let's go a little further. You need to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's a level of compassion that I struggle with, let alone all of us, Right? But what we need to see is that selectivity is a workaround where we're saying, I need to be compassionate, but not to these people, because they need to get fixed. Unfortunately, Jesus does not allow that as an excuse. So don't practice selectivity. Finally, um, oh, and this is... I always forget. This is what happens when I get free flow. Like, I swear I have notes, but I'm like, look, I'm just going to flow with it. Can I tell you an interesting thing? Kelly and I had dinner with some friends in Southern California, and they're ministry folks, so it's wonderful. They live in Orange County, and I'm going to tell you, Orange County, if those who have never been there, is the most pristine place on the face of the earth. Like, it's just everybody is gorgeous, and everything is well manicured, and there are neighborhoods, but they're far off, you know, the main road, so you don't have to look at them right? So what was funny is our friends, they had taken a ministry in Los Angeles, and they're trying to tell us that, and Kelly and I are like, okay, like, you took a ministry in Los Angeles, and they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. There's the orange curtain, which is supposed to be a playoff, like the, the iron curtain, which is supposed to be a Soviet bloc reference, But there's this idea that once you leave the Orange County, the OC, and head into Los Angeles, that you are a stranger in a strange land. And these people had people from their church. It's like, hey, we're taking a ministry in Los Angeles. And they're like, you're going there? (laughs) You know, as if they are crossing the seas to go to a third world country, because that's how they envision it. Now, I'm going to tell you, these are wonderful people of God who say this, but I would say that that's where the selectivity of our compassion shows itself, When when, when we... Try to say, these people are not worthy of the compassion of God. We're working around what he wants us to do. Finally, this third thing, separation, right? We limit our vision so we don't see those who actually need compassion. This is the other thing I was wrestling with for the past few months as I was doing this. I think one of the difficulties that happens for us trying to display compassion is that we are so aware Like, our digital connectivity allows us to know stuff that happens all the way around the world that we might not otherwise. Like, just this past few weeks, Sam and Brittany Gill, I'll show their pictures later, they're missionaries in Pakistan, and they were talking about this government thing and riots, and I was like... I have no idea what they're talking about, but it sounds like a big deal. And then, you know, look online is that there was a Christian woman who they accused of blasphemy with no proof, blasphemy against Islam, against, you know, the teachings of the prophet Muhammad, so that they said the law demanded that we kill her, and Pakistan is trying to become like, you know, from a third to a second, maybe even a first world country. So they're like, we can't kill this woman with no proof. So now there are riots because they want her dead. Like, it's just insane, Right? And I'm like, I never would have known that a decade ago, but now I have close friends in Pakistan who can relate to me exactly what's happening there. I mean, that's just a lot of information to deal with. So I think what we do then is we practice more selectivity in just trying to say, okay, I'm not going to open myself up, or excuse me, separation, I'm not going to open myself up to all that's happening out there so that I can protect what I deem to be important. Okay, I will tell you why that becomes problematic, because when we make the world smaller, friends, what we are doing is that we are shortening the base of our compassion. And this might be the most jacked up thing I've said in a while up here, but I think it's true, because some of us then practice the separation by, you know, just muting our networks and channels and everything that we take into, right? Like, we just are like, okay, I'm taking a Facebook fast, and that will solve it. There's a balance within here, but I think that's not the best thing to do. I would offer that maybe what we need to do is actually open ourselves more to some of the craziness that happens outside here. And again, there's an election this week, and some of us are like, praise Jesus, this thing will be over. So there will be some semblance of normalcy, friend, is it will never end. But that's one of the reasons why I'm like, why is it so crazy for me? Because I keep friends on both sides of the polls and everywhere in between. So I hear all the horribleness that is spouted by everybody. And you know what? I still let that go in. And that sounds masochistic, but the reason I'm doing that is because I believe, think about, God has to witness all of this. Jesus had to witness it as well. I think we just need to figure out how we can be less separatist. Because again, there's so much out there, okay? Maybe this is, again, I think this could be the toughest thing I might ever say. You're like, this is so impossible because there's so much horribleness out there. But friends, when we start to manicure our lives, what we do is we take those opportunities from compassion out of the equation, and then we think we're practicing to true compassion, but in reality, it's muted. It's not nearly as robust as it needs to be. So these are ways we work around it. What I would say is, what is then Christ's response? What is a good Christian definition of compassion? And I come here just simply to say that it is to suffer with. That we're so sensitive to the suffering of others that we add it to our own. And by the way, for the words compassion, uh, and I should have asked my daughter who's now my Latin scholar at hand, but the word compati, I'll teach you then. The word compati literally means to suffer with. That root right there. It means for us to suffer with. Now, you know... I like suffering in a conceptual form, but when it says with, what I'm doing is trying to say, I will take that on myself. And again, why this becomes difficult is because we're like, I have enough crap in my own life. What do you expect me to do? Add other people's stuff to my own? And I would say, yes, because that's what Jesus did, right? It was his MO. It was also how God reacts himself. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1-3, the Apostle Paul writes, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received from God. I always remember this verse. I was like, that's a lot of comfort and compassion in one verse. But here's the point, is that you were made by the God of compassion, the Father of compassion. And we have been the recipients of that. Why? So that we might then, Be compassionate ourselves because as God made us, we are his and made in his image. And therefore, it's our call to push compassion out wherever it can be found. Again, this isn't prejudicial. This isn't separatist. This is suffering with. It is me saying, you know what? I got a lot of baggage right now and I'm not happy. But maybe the solution is me suffering with somebody else to see. And some of you are like, but that sounds like a miserable existence. It doesn't have to be if your framework is centered within who the God of compassion is. Does that make sense? So I don't think I would teach this to a bunch of non-Christians because I don't believe it would resonate as well. Because then you're getting into these handling of the stress, the additional stress of this all through self. You can't do it yourself. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who derives from the God of compassion god who comforts us when we need comfort i also like here in uh proverbs chapter 31 8 and 9 which you know we always think proverbs 31 talks about the godly woman but here is this at the front speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute speak up and judge fairly defend the rights of the poor and needy and again we often frame this within merely social economic terms right And you know what becomes tough about that right now? And one of the reasons that compassion levels are so low among Christians is because when you're around people who you might consider poor, you're like, wait, they've got cable TV and smartphones. Like, where is the level of poverty here? Again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to separate. We're trying to be selective in how we do this. We're like, okay, since those won't work, I'll just focus on inward. No, the idea exists that we need to, friends, be there for people who need help. And that might be social, economically, but it also might be psychologically. It might be more important. It might be spiritually. This is what it means to suffer with. For me to take burdens upon myself that are stupid for me to do so in an earthly realm, but are the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, to be compassionate for our world. So what I'd ask you then is, what does this mean for us to live this out? It means... To do what God did. It means to see the world the way in which our creator does. He loved the world so much, he sent his son. Again, how many times do we interpret this personally? You know, we talk about the person, you know, he's, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Okay. But who did Jesus come for? He came for the world. For not just me, but for me's. For we. For us. Okay. So how do we do this? I'm telling you I'm gonna roll this week. Because I went like four S's right in a row here. Right? So you got your S alliteration. That was memorable. Right? Self-care. Selectivity. Separation. But suffer with. You like that? Nobody's taking notes. You all fail. So this time I went with the T alliteration to say how do we then live this out? Okay, so let me tell you one thing. Oh, how did I do that? I'm going to do this and come back to pie graph. Oh, that graph might be in the wrong place, so I might be all over. I was in California last week. It was beautiful. First thing I'm going to say here with compassion is we need to think eternal. Um, and I didn't put a picture here because I, just, I was just shocked by it, but I don't know if you saw the uh, picture of the 7-year-old girl in Yemen this past week. There's a famine that's going around. It, it made the cover of the New York Times. But, you know, again, we're so aware, I can just open up the media, and I see there's a famine that's working because the government is starving certain people out, and there was a picture of a starving girl, and it sparked outrage all over the place. And we've seen those types of things. That's why we look away, but we see that outrage. This is where I want us to recalibrate right here, is that I think we also need to think eternally with how that works. So it doesn't mean that we show no compassion toward people in needs but I think we need to lean into those people who are thinking more about the holistic. Yes, the gospel is for eternal life, but it's also the gospel for today. But what we want to do is we want to lean toward this place. So I've seen the trend. It's what happens with Christian people. We're like, we want to build wells and villages across the ocean where they need it, but that heightens the need then for those people doing this, for us to invest in people doing the work of Jesus elsewhere. Now, you might be that that makes us selective because does that mean that we care about Christians more than Muslims or Hindus or Jew- no, that's not the point. What it is, though, is I think we need to think eternally and really in our showing compassion to the world, take into account of people around the globe who are preaching the name of Jesus. Because I'm telling you, those people aren't just preaching about Jesus. I'll talk a little bit more about this in the back end, but I I want us to say when we're we're thinking about how to be compassionate, think eternally. This world is sinful. It is fallen. Jesus redeems it, and he will ultimately redeem it for for eternity in heaven. I think we need to think eternally. So this is the second thing. I want to say that we trust locally. Now, this is going to get back into the church, so stick with me, because this isn't self-grandizing, because I'm not on the payroll or anything, but this is important as a shepherd of this community is the reason that I appreciate this fellowship is that we have existed for 13 years in a neighborhood and have tried to show compassion not just here but also abroad. That's a tough thing to do. There's high skepticism for churches today. I would not want to be the leadership team at Crossroads because those that's a big elephant And they get shots all the time for this. And yet here we are as a small church, and I've still witnessed the idea when people were like, well, you know, how are are you guys managing your finances? Like, what are you doing? You know, and this is why I included this graph. Even though it was out of place, let me see if I can come back to it. This is very much a simple graph that explains to you what this little body has done. And by the way, there's something to be said about this. Because the guilt that I felt is that I was a shepherd of this church for 13 years, was there at the very beginning, and I've never talked about giving at this robust level. And one of the reasons why I was like, I don't want us to be like every other church that is like, oh, you just need to give more, right? But here's the thing now. We've been around for 13 years. Roughly, roughly in that 13 years, even though we are a small church, right? You're looking around. In that roughly 13 years, we've received $1 million from people, which is funny. I work with churches that receive 15 to $20 million a year, but, okay, $13 million, $1 million, you know, we should be rolling in it right now. But we're not because of this, right? We make sure that 20, and historically, over the existence of this church, 20% of that has gone straight overseas. Kelly writes the checks monthly so that they have income every month. And she has written to overseas missionaries $200,000 from Echo Church in all those years. Like, that's cool for a small church like this. But what's funny is I can say that, and even though you see that little 20%, you guys are looking at 40 and 40. Because then you're like, wait a second, I know a little something about return on investment. So are you telling that it takes 80% then to do the 20%? Like, why don't I just, you know, like, this seems like a bad investment. Well, let me tell you something about this, by the way, is that um, when we look at the overhead of that, that 80%, even though it looks like big on the pie, even if the, (laughs) it, it is not a lot of money. And our ministry staff aren't rolling in this. And even though, you know, this is a great building, we negotiated a great deal on this building. And by the way, the operations and stuff doesn't count how much that we've poured into community initiatives, like we've helped the CELC with this building, we helped other churches when we were in the other building. All these times we've invested within this, so that's what we count as operations. I just say all that's to be is the idea that I'm at the point, 13 years later, after starting this thing, I'm just like you. You know, give of my resources to the kingdom of God. But I'm telling you is that this has a 13-year-old track record of being a church that you can trust with what we do with our finances. And I think you need to trust that. Now, let me temper this then because graph, everybody like this? I included a pie graph in the sermon. It was really good. The last thing I want us to do is to take it global and to think about this globally. Because here we go again, other graph. Okay, so if you're looking at 20% with everything else we say, you might be like, that's a bad return on investment. So just seriously help me out. You don't, maybe you don't have to say it, but if you're bold enough. So what would seem like a better solution if you're like, take it globally. Let's cut out the middleman, right? You're like, we'll just cut out the middleman and forget Echo taking their 80% of cut. We'll just go and support this. And you know what? I'll tell you, one of the reasons that I struggled for years with giving and before I got into church financing was this idea it was like, it made sense to me. So we were just, look, when we started the church, we have a little offering box in the back. Now we have it online. We sometimes ask you to give once a month or so, right? Like we were, almost, it's almost like we tried to do our best to guard this, but then I thought about this. And then I thought about who we've supported. And friends, as a reality, even within that 20%, it might not seem like a lot of you, but if we didn't do our part within that, We have been the consistent giving level for these ministries, and without echo, even doing our little part, many of them might not even exist. They might not exist if for our 20%. Let me tell you the second thing that this happens. It gives exposure to those missions and ministries because some of you have made additional gifts to their work, and you never would have known them if you hadn't just sat here in the pews, right? So it exposes you to the work of the kingdom everywhere. So this is a thing I wanted to say here. And you know what, Larry and I, as elders, I didn't even tell you about this deal, but I'm giving you a deal today if you're like, look, Steve, I bought in on your compassion shtick. I'm going to start giving to stuff, but I don't want to give it to Echo. I'm saying, fine, give it straight to the missionary. But I have a caveat right here. And here's the thing. Here are our missionaries. You can find them online, and I believe our links are up to date. You can find out how to give to any of these people directly. If you're like, I don't want the 80% to go to Echo Church. I'm going to go straight to them. I would tell you, fine, except this is the thing I would say. If you choose that route, like we're not going to check, by the way. I don't get anybody's routing numbers or anything. However, if you do that, you have to make a deal. You can't stop giving. You have to continue to give to those people with regularity. If you're going to make that choice, make that choice. God will take care of Echo Church. And if you're supporting a missionary with all that you give, praise Jesus for you. But don't stop. Because I don't know if you can tell, there's small print. I want to get this all in things. Is that up in, uh, in, by the way, three of these missionaries were with us this summer. And the reason that Daniel can't, and we've helped Daniel immensely. We are actually ascending church now for both Daniel in Myanmar and, and what was Burma. And for uh, Sam. Uh, Gil and his family up in Pakistan we are now the sending organizations they are using our 501c3 to funnel all their giving here so that's another thing at Echo Church that really is basically Kelly doing all the work like we talk about bank drafts all the time about how you we were smuggling money to Myanmar in the black market like I it made me you know my wife is is a wonderful woman but it made our marriage better because I'm like my wife sends money on the black market to Singapore do you but you all were doing it while she was doing it. So if you feel bad about that illegality, that's fine. But here's the thing. The reason Daniel doesn't come through is because he, whenever we send him money, he gives it away to other people. Right? He and They live in abject poverty. So go ahead and send this if you're going to do it, but just keep up with it. Because you see, 10 years, like, just Johnny and Sandra. the reason we picked them up is another church. They were a full-sending church. They dropped them completely. So they didn't know how they were going to stay in Venezuela, which is a horrible, horrible economic situation right now. We support them for two years we have. But everybody else, it's going on seven, eight, ten, twelve years. Every month they get something from us. So I'm just saying, if you want to be compassionate and you want to cut out the middleman, rock it. But don't stop because they rely on you. And that's why this whole thing is, for me, it's just like, you know, we as a church have tried to model taking this global. We just want you to do that as well, okay? So you're like, wait, so is compassion all about giving? It is, friends, because as we start to show people, it's it's giving of yourself, okay? And by the way, I don't think any time in the next few weeks, I'm not talking about the if you should tithe, You know, your gross offering or what the tithe is. You know what I mean? Like, all these different questions. I don't want us to get into strategy. What I want us to see is that this is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to rend your heart. It means to lay it all out. And there's people all over the world who are living that out, and we get to partner with them right here, and that's a beautiful thing. Can I do another commercial here just as far as it's concerned? Next week, here in Cincinnati at the Duke Energy Center, the International Conference on Missions, which is a gathering from missionaries all over the world is going to take place and by the way, it is run on a shoestring budget because I'm involved like, in that a lot, and they are not getting rich on that deal at all. But what will be awesome is that down there, there will be 300, 400 missionaries from around the world. And if this clicks with you, we've registered for a cheap price, our entire church. You can go down to anything Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or excuse me, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You can go down and just find out about what God's doing through these people all over the world. We could use your help volunteering on Thursday night, too. That's another thing. But it's just find compassion for your world. Open up your vision. Grapple with the guilt. The guilt is horrible. That's why we flee it. Right? You're like, well, then how will I sleep at night? Trust that the Holy Spirit's going to figure this out for you. Right? Don't fear failure here. Give yourself to compassion. Compassion for your world. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Psalm 112, verse 4, says, Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious in compassion. The Lord is calling us to be the light of compassion for his world. Let's be those people that do it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this time... um, First, I, I just really think, just help your spirit help us to grapple with guilt because I don't even like listening to myself saying some of this because I realize that, oh, I need to be doing so much more. But Father, instead of having us be paralyzed, help your spirit to see those incremental ways in which we can bless what's happening around the world. Father, you show us compassion and comfort regularly. Help us to those people that exhibit compassion and comfort to those in our world. Father, I pray for our missionaries right now and all of them are in different limiting areas and places where it is tough to do your work and yet God, they're there and they are a light and we are just grateful for the opportunity to partner with them. Father, as we seek to be like your son Jesus and to follow him. Please help us show compassion for our world.